Thank you so much, Visayo, for uh, sharing that. Church, just a reminder, too, for uh, the Alpha Retreat. Uh, it's, it's, it's for Alpha. It's, that's the, the main goal, but it's also a time to kind of get away, uh, to be in nature and hopefully enjoy good weather like we're having today. Uh, hoping, praying to God that this weather stays this way, too. Um, also for next week for, for brunch. And so for Easter brunch, it's going to be outdoors. And um, if it does rain, we're probably, you know, we don't have an alternative. And so we'll just uh, cancel and maybe deliver you some food or something like that. But uh, please do pray for no rain, uh, that God would please bless that time as we get together. Uh, so excited. My name is Noah again. I'm the pastor here at Park Community Church, Hyde Park. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Daniel 8. Uh, if you need a Bible, there are some over there in the bookshelf. If you, um, you know, have a phone, then you can just search Daniel 8 and it should pop right up. Daniel 8. Uh, we've been going through as a church the entire book of Daniel since, uh, since February now. And um, it's a story about some Jewish elites who get taken into a foreign land to serve a foreign nation under foreign laws. That's really kind of the context we're in here. Chapters 1 through 6 of Daniel, we get a picture of what it looks like to live in exile. Um, Daniel and his friends, we hear stories of how they encounter Nebuchadnezzar, or how they survived the fiery furnace, or how Daniel survived the lion's den. And then if you missed any of those sermons, I would strongly encourage you, you can listen to them. They're on um, Spotify or kind of the listening app there where you can listen to those sermons. But as Rafe, Pastor Rafe opened up last week, we get into uh, kind of the part of Daniel where most people skip over, which is the prophecies um, that are really confusing if you don't uh, read them carefully or understand what's going on. Um, and so we're going to be in chapter 8. So chapter 7 kind of started that. Chapter 8, we're going to continue in that. But for us as a church, kind of looking into these prophecies that were written about 2,500 years ago, um, it, it really helps us to see kind of what God is trying to speak to his people at that time. And there are lessons that we can still take away from that, even though a lot of the direct meaning is probably not relevant for us at, that, at this time. There are still lessons that we can take from these prophecies. So what I want to do today, before I read the text, I'm going to read the whole thing, um, Daniel 8. Before I do that, I'm just going to do kind of a, I'm, my goal is just twofold. Number one, the first one is just to explain what in the world is going on in Daniel 8. That's goal number one. And number two is what then can we take away as Christ followers 2,500 years after this has been written, what can we be taken away from this prophecy? What does it mean to us today, and how does that help us live as Christ followers in 2022, right? That's the year we're in, right? 2022, right? COVID messes a lot, uh, and so 2022. So with that, let me read Daniel 8, and so I'm reading from the ESV here, Daniel 8. Uh, I'm going to read a whole through, and then I'm going to pray, and then really just kind of dig in here, all right? Daniel 8. It reads, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. 
he did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Verse 9. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great even as great, even as, great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offerings was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will, it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary, and host to the trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Verse 15, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horns that was broken, in place of which four others rose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the later end of the kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one, with, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints." By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and in the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I arose and went about the king's business, but was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Let me pray. Father, uh, this is a, a dense word, a dense chapter. Um, even Daniel did not understand it at the end of the day. And so for us, God, as we're just trying to be faithful 
um, followers of you, followers of you, God, I just ask that you would just help us see what you uh, want us to see in this passage. There's no way that we can cover the extent of all of this in uh, about 30 minutes, but I do pray, God, that you would um, speak through your spirit. Um, just as Bushayo said, I pray that our hearts would be fertile, um, would be good soil, that whatever you want us to hear and take and do, that it would do so, uh, and whatever is not of you, that it would be forgotten and just um, left here when we go out throughout our weeks. Thank you, God, for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's dive in, okay? What in the world is this prophecy, all right? Um, kind of like what Rafe mentioned too. Now, there's not just like one major belief in all of this. There is, I would say, a dominant, dominant one that most scholars, theologians, pastors uh, um, believe. And that's kind of the one that I'm going to be leaning into here. But just know this, that in a lot of prophecy, even if you read other prophecies, other prophetic words in like the end times, like in Revelations, not everyone is on the same page. And that's okay. Okay, that's that's okay. But let me try to give you what I feel like is um, being shared here. Now, this prophetic vision, if you notice, it's chapter 8. It's written on, or it's seen only two years after chapter 7. So there is kind of some similarities, but they're not entirely the same. And what's also really unique, and you don't see this in your English translation, is that in Daniel, Daniel's actually written in two different languages. So chapter 1 and chapter 8 through 11 are actually written in Hebrew. And chapter 2 to 7 are written in Aramaic. And the reason is because you have to know that Daniel and his, you know, his friends, they're in Babylon and then in Persia. And Aramaic is the dominant language in that time. And Hebrew is the dominant language for the Israelites. And so chapter 7 was actually written in Aramaic. So to kind of all people. And then chapter 8 is written in Hebrew. So already the audience is changing here most likely Daniel is writing for his fellow Jews, for the Israelites. And so then we jump in right to this, you know, vision, this imagery of these um, two beasts. Unlike four, like last week, we have two this time. But he goes a little bit deeper into them. Um, I think I have a kind of a picture, right? Yeah, picture. Okay, so kind of just helping you visualize it. I don't know if you need to, like a picture of a ram and a goat, but there it is. Um, and the first one that he talks about is the ram, okay? The ram, later on, um, the angel Gabriel uh, tells us that this ram represents media, uh, media and Persia, the next kingdom that would conquer Babylon. And we see this ram charging westward. So if this is east, westward, and northward, and southward, and becoming great. And this is very accurate to how Persia became powerful. They came from the east, and they would go towards the west. And it also says that one horn was bigger than the other, and that ultimately points to Persia really being the dominant people group of that kingdom, not the Midianites. And then one key symbol of the Persian Empire, and scholars have seen this in writings and even in artifacts, is of a golden ram. And so very much so, the angel in this vision um, says that the golden ram represents Persia. So by 530 BC, the Medo-Persian Empire controlled more territory than any other empire before. And the next slide, I think it's a map. And so you kind of see the orange. It, they basically had a rule over all that land which is one of the most powerful empires, actually the most powerful empire in that time. Then the, sex, then the next image is of a beast, uh, which is a goat with a horn. So the next slide is the same picture, but just kind of another circle. The goat with the horn. 
and it sweeps the entire whole earth, as verse 5 says, without touching the ground. And that's really unique because what, what Daniel sees is basically like a royal rumble of these two animals, duking it out together. But the ram, like, it does not stand a chance. It gets defeated, and the goat becomes great. And as verse 8 says, the great horn of that goat is then eventually broken, and then four conspicuous horns come out of it. Now, it's really crazy to, to see how accurate this is of the next empire to come, which is the Greek empire, um, led by Alexander the Great. And you should have, I mean, most of you probably learned about Alexander the Great in history, very prominent historical figure. And like the goat, Greece also came from the West. They came and they swept through the entire world, defeating the Persian Empire. And what's really unique and kind of this whole language of the, uh, the goat did not touch the ground, it only took Alexander the Great three years to conquer this entire known world in his military tactics. It is a military feat that no other military commander ever has ever done, but he did this. And if you notice in verse 7 of our text, what's really interesting is that it says that the goat was enraged at the ram, which is interesting because in the history of Greece, Alexander had very deep hatred toward the Persian Empire because they conquered and they oppressed many Greeks in their time. And so he conquered them fiercely, and he, he did it really well. But then at the age of 32, Alexander, and this is in history books, he dies at 32 years old, which is crazy because that's how old I am. He, at his pinnacle height of his conquest, he died. Some say malaria, they're not too sure. Um, and so because of that, the great big horn, which was him, it was broken up into four conspicuous horns, which represents four different Greek generals that eventually kind of divvied up and took over the Greek empire. So that's kind of that. That's not too different from chapter seven, but uh, the vision goes in more detail than chapter seven. And then in verse nine, we get this image of a little horn that grows out of the goat or the Greek empire. Now, this horn is not the same one that Rave talked about in chapter seven. Most likely, now this is you know my interpretation, but most scholars would believe this too. Um, in chapter eight. This little horn represents a unique historical figure named Antichus IV, who lived in um, 175 BC. So that's kind of his, um, kind of his sculpture there. That, that's who he was. And as we read in our text, the horn started small, but then it grew and became more powerful as it reached south and east and the glorious land, which is another way to say the land of Israel or Palestine. And as you see this map, the yellow portion is eventually all the essentially land that he was over, which is pretty much like most of it. So he was a very powerful historical figure. Um, and what's interesting is that this was now 400 years after Daniel was written, 400 years. Um, and unlike, you know, and there's a lot of different trans interpretations. Some think that this person was supposed to be the Antichrist, some don't, but I think it's most likely referring to this historical figure because of this, because of the amount of similarities that we see in chapter 8 that relate to Antichrist and the historical records that we see. 
Now, let me just kind of run through some of this evidence. And this is a lot of history here. I'm sorry if you don't love history, but it's a lot of it here, okay? Um, in verse 10 of our text, we see that this horn grew great, and it threw, uh, and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. Now, Antiochus is really popular in Jewish history because he was probably the one that they that Jewish Jewish people know that oppressed and persecuted the Jews to the most of any in their history. Now, um, if you uh, have ever read, now this is First and Second Maccabees. This is actually in the Catholic Apocrypha. It's not in um, the what we believe is canonical and the Protestant Church, but it's actually really good historical records of the Jewish people. In those accounts, we read of Antiochus, who was alive from 170 BC to 163 BC. And in that time period, he had done many horrible things for the, or to the Jewish people. He would assassinate leaders and high priests. He would punish thousands of Jews who did not follow Greek law. He tore down the walls of Jerusalem. And in 1 Maccabees, there's a period where Antiochus would actually slaughter over 80,000 Jews, women, children, and men, because of just kind of his pride and of how he didn't like um, this people. And then in verse 11, it says that this horn grew great, even as great as the Prince of Hosts, so kind of even comparing himself to God. And he then took away the burnt offering and the sanctuary was overthrown. Now, it's crazy again because in Jewish records, there is an account of Antiochus actually desecrating God's temple, the temple the Jewish worshipped in, by erecting an altar of Zeus, which is the Greek kind of main god, and offering um, pig sacrifices on it. So which you know in Jewish culture, um, pigs were considered unclean. And so he essentially just defiled that temple. He even turned it, some say, into a, into a brothel. And he would prevent Jews from practicing any laws, their diet, their Sabbath, circumcision, and any feast. And that if they did any one of those, they would be killed. And this was kind of the, the rule he had. Um, and then in verse 12, the last one that I'll share is that in verse 12, it says, um, he will throw truth to the ground. And let me just read actually what 1 Maccabee 1, 56, 57 says. Um, and it, this is about... Antiochus. It says, the books of the law, which they, being the Greeks, found, they tore to pieces and burned with fire. Where the book of the covenant was found in the possession of anyone, or if anyone adhered to the law, the degree of the king, which is Antiochus, condemned him to death. Now, there's a lot more I can go into. Um, a lot more, even in verse 23 and 25, where it talks about this king who had a bold face or who was cunning or deceitful, that very much describes Antiochus in the historical books. He was a very, I mean, he wasn't a very powerful man, but what he did was he very much kind of went underneath and was really deceitful in the way that he gained power in um, the Greek empire. And eventually, though, in verse 13, we see in verse 25 as well, that amidst all the hardship, amidst all the persecution on the Jewish people, verse 13 says that that period will end. And it gives this number, 2,300 um, you know, evenings and mornings or 2,300 days. That was kind of a period of time when the persecution would end. And in verse 25, um, it says, I'm, I'm like going through really fast here, but verse 25 says that, mo that um, this horn will be broken, but by no human hand. And the way that Antiochus actually dies um, is 
uh, actually unknown in historical records. People guess that he might have gotten sick or he might have committed suicide. Like they're not, they're not too sure. Um, but many of the Jews who believed that uh, Antiochus died was mainly by the hand of God. Now, um, this is actually, if you want more history here, um, what happens uh, in Jewish history during this time period when Antiochus is persecuting the Jewish people, what happens is that the Jews eventually revolt. And if you know of the Maccabean revolution or revolt, this is when they actually come and they, they kind of use guerrilla tactics to get the Greek soldiers out of Jerusalem. The Jews then reestablish and rededicate the temple. Um, and then the Greeks kind of, kind of flee from that place. And as a result, on, in 168 BC, the Jewish people starts, they start this festival called Hanukkah. And that's kind of where it comes from. Um, and this is very much historically true and accurate, and Jews still celebrate Hanukkah to this day. Now, um, that's a lot. Um, I don't expect you all to remember all that. I'm not going to give a quiz at the end. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a lot. But uh, it's really interesting, I think. And the way that I want to kind of summarize all that content is in this chart that you'll see here. Now, um, this chart is kind of just helpful to know what's going on in chapter 7 and what chapter 8. Uh, chapter 7, it's the first, so this is kind of, both visions are given to Daniel. Uh, 7 was the first year of King Belshazzar, and chapter 8 was the third year of King Belshazzar, so they happen really close together. I mentioned 7 is written in Aramaic, 8 written in Hebrew. Chapter 7 covers a lot more of world history and even one eternal kingdom coming up. Um, chapter 8 is more specified in two earthly kingdoms, Persia and Greece. Um, you know, seven, you know, 600 year period. This is more 300, 400 year period. Um, and chapter seven really points to the rebellion of Nero, a Roman ruler, and the coming of a future Antichrist. But chapter eight mainly points to the rebellion pointing to Antichus in Jewish history, a Greek ruler. Kind of the main summary is that chapter seven points to the fall of an earthly kingdom, which is most likely Rome and the rise of a heavenly kingdom established by Jesus Christ, which will never end and never be broken ever again. Chapter 8, it points to the coming destruction and persecution that will end in time, and I'll add, mainly for the Jewish people in this historical time. Chapter 7, at the end, it's a message of hope for all people, um, but chapter 8 is a message really of comfort for the Jews that Daniel is given. This really kind of, you know, if this is like the summary of these two chapters, um, it kind of helps you wrap your mind around what's going on. So the next question that hopefully relates to more of, that kind of, that kind of goes into it is, why is Daniel receiving this second prophecy? I think that's a good question to kind of ask. Um, I mentioned here, it's kind of a message of comfort for the Jews, but kind of a good way to illustrate this is, you know, imagine you had to take uh, a road trip, all right? I don't know if you guys like road trips or take road trips even, but um, road trips can be fun, right? They can be fun with friends or they can be really grueling depending how far you have to go. Uh, but do you know what is one of the most annoying parts about a road trip? Anyone know? It's when you see this sign that says construction five miles ahead, right? Uh, I see some nods here, okay? You guys know, understand here. 
Um, I don't know about you, but when I see this sign when I'm driving, like home, like when I was like in college, back to St. Louis, it could be the like the most wor- like the worst sign to see because you never know what's going to happen. You never know if that sign meant that when those five miles hit, that you're going to be like in bumper to bumper traffic in the middle of cornfields, right? Or it's like really nothing, and you just really just speed right on through. You just never know, and 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 I think for. Um, you know, for, for us, it, it's good, though, because when you're driving in, um, you know, those long roads in a road trip, it's good because at least that sign serves as a warning of what's coming up. It's, you know, it, can, it could be something that will suck your soul five miles down, or it can just be a, a cakewalk, and you go right through. And you never know. And the, the, the good thing, though, is that it won't shock you when it comes. And I think for the Jewish people and for Daniel, he was receiving this vision because this intense persecution was going to come upon the Jewish people, unlike anything they've ever experienced. And for them, you know, as it says, for Daniel, he's going to, he's going to, you know, seal these words up so that when the time comes, they will know as the Jews what's going to be happening. And this word will actually be a word of comfort for the Jews. Telling them that this intense persecution will end in time. And just as the God who knows all of time, he also predicted that this will happen for them. And so, you know, you have to imagine if you're a Jew kind of opening up Daniel's letter here, that these words would probably comfort you, knowing that this time of persecution will end. And also knowing that God knew this was going to happen, that their God knew that this persecution time will come their way and that they can almost, in a way, prepare for it. And so for us, though, um, this period, the the Maccabean Revolution, all those things are 2,000-plus years before us. It doesn't have much meaning to us. And so for us, like, what what does this chapter 8 of Daniel have anything to do with us? What can we take away? What can we learn? Um, Noah just gave a long history lesson. I don't know what to do with it. I understand. I, I completely get you. I, I've been, <laughs> I wrestled a lot with even just how to share this text. But I have just three um, prophetic applications for you. I'm going to go by them kind of quickly. Um, but just three prophetic applications that I feel like you can even take away if you're reading like Revelations or some other prophetic words in the Bible. And I'm going to go through them one by one. First, what we can take away is we take wonder in God's sovereignty. That we can take wonder in God's sovereignty. You know, there's a temptation that when we read texts like this, in Dan- like Daniel 8, to take the prophecies a bit too lightly. And the reason is, is that maybe you've grown up in the church, or maybe you're like, yeah, God knows the future. That's a given, right? No, like kind of just sit on that a little bit. Because if we truly believe that this was the inspired word of God and that each detail that Daniel received about this goat and this ram and this horn were accurately predicted 400 years later of what is going to happen about the rulers, about their motivations, about even the persecution that were to come, that is ridiculous. That is crazy that God could predict that so accurately. Now, the only way that non-Christian scholars say that, um, because they even say 
reading this that it is incredibly accurate. The only way they can say that this is not Antichrist or that this is not prophecy would be to say that this had to been have written after the events happened. But we, as Christ followers, believe that this was written by Daniel and 550 BC around there, and it predicted 400 years into the future. We believe in a God who knows the past and the present and the future. He knows what's gonna happen 20 years from your life, from this day. He knows who will be the next president or what will be trending on Twitter tomorrow. He knows how many raindrops will fall on the earth a minute and exactly how many will fall. He knows even when the Chicago Bears will win another Super Bowl, which might not be for a very long time, okay? God's sovereignty essentially means that God remains in control over time and space. And if that is true, our response should be the same as what happens in Daniel chapter 8, verse 17, when he sees this vision and he sees, he, he has, he sees this person who has an appearance of a man in verse 15, and what he does in verse 17 is he falls on his face. He has no other choice but to fall and worship in awe and wonder. In church, the question, you know, I have a couple questions that I'll go through is, when was the last time you were so amazed at who God was that you fell down on your face? When was the last time you were left speechless by God's power and sovereignty? It, this vision, this prophetic word should do that in us. It's, you know, for us, I feel like a lot of times we have so much control of our lives that we don't realize just how all, all wonder and majestic our God is. And this vision and this prophet kind of points to that. That's number one. The second application is that we lament the tribulations. We lament the tribulations. You know, the sad reality is that nearly every prophetic book in the Bible has um, predictions of destruction and annihilation and, and suffering. And Daniel 8 is no different here. Um, the tribulation was very specific to the Jewish people at this time, but we all know that the world produces tribulations every single day. It can be in an individual scale, a loss of a job, uh, a mental illness, a broken relationship, or just a hard week. Or it could be at a larger scale. You know, we think of gun violence here in the city, or the disparity between rich and poor, or war going on even in our world right now, or persecution amongst Christians, or, you know, the global pandemic, to name a few. Uh, what Daniel 8 reminds us of is that tribulations will continue to come in a world marked by sin and brokenness because of the sin in each one of us, but also sin around us in this world. So lamenting then is when we grieve audibly and visibly and expressively because of the brokenness in our world. It's when we express our emotions and hardships honestly before God and before others. But then how often do we lament? You know, how, how often do we earnestly lament over the brokenness in this world? For example here, how many of you have truly lamented the loss that COVID has brought upon this world? How many of you? I, I don't think I even have, to be honest. Have, have we taken time to actually lament and mourn and even maybe write down 
all the things that we or others have lost because of COVID, it could not even just be lives, but time, relationships, work, travel, family, just the list goes on. I imagine most of us have probably not taken even a moment to mourn and grieve really what COVID has done to us, but also the world. And did you know that most non-Western cultures um, would take anywhere from around 10 to 30 days to grieve a death in their family? Like 10, 30 days, maybe even a month, right? But you know what the average time most workplaces give for bereavement? It's three days or less. Um, and that's average, and it's actually average around the world. Um, some countries don't, but most around the world do that. And this is kind of a byproduct of our culture prioritizing work, efficiency, business, profit, or even just distractions over the important process of lamenting and grieving the hardships that we face in our lives, especially death. But when we read Daniel 8, we see even his response here. Um, and it's like the other, scripture, other prophets in Scripture. We're reminded that the first thing after he hears of this news is that he gets, um, if you see in verse, I think it's 27 here, where he, he feels sick. He's, he, he's overcome and he's laying sick for days. He knows that he can't fix this. He can't run away from this. He can't be distracted by anything else. But he embraces the pain and the sorrow in his heart. And he laments, and he's, he's even physically sick because of it. Because when you read Daniel 8, what's interesting about its prophecy is that, you know, this prophecy, it does give hope for the Jews. The, the persecution will end here, right? But what's not fully told, and we learn later throughout history, is that even though the Jews get their freedom in 168 BC, and they rededicate the temple, they celebrate Hanukkah, all is good. But you know what happens 100 years later after that? the Roman Empire comes, and they are oppressed and enslaved again. And it, it's maybe not as bad as Antiochus, but it's pretty bad. And so how does God respond after this? This, this is a cycle that the Israelites go over and over and over again. They get free, they're enslaved. They're free, they're enslaved. And what God decides to do is that in 50 years, I mean, in, in you know, 550 years since Daniel, what God decides to do, and we know the story if you've been in the church, is that God decides to come down himself. And he comes named Emmanuel, God with us, that his sovereign plan would be to meet the world in their tribulations and hardships. Not to run away, but to run towards them. And he wouldn't just put a band-aid on the problem here. He would offer his very life for each one of us who are broken and hopeless in this world that's broken and hopeless too. So that if we would believe and trust and follow him, that we would no longer be bound by the brokenness and sin that's in this world. Jesus Christ would be the prophet that would usher in a new kingdom that no man could tear down. A hope that would not end at the cross, but one that continues because he defeats sin and death at that resurrection moment. He gives us the power of the Spirit in that he also promises that one day in the future, he will come again and make all things new. That one day, all the brokenness that the prophets predicted throughout all of history will one day be to an end. 
where we will no longer need to lament and grieve, where Jesus will say, we can finally go home. Which leads me to my third application that we can take from all the prophets is that we take comfort in the future. We take comfort in the future. You know, if we truly believe that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, he will come in his glory and defeat all sin and death once and for all. That should be the most comforting news that we take with us every single day. It's like this. It's like if you, you know, say, for example, you already know the end of a movie, uh, maybe because you read the book or something like that, but your friends haven't seen the movie. And so you're watching the movie together. And during the entire movie, you're, you know, you, you see your, your friends are at the edge of their seats because they don't know what's going to happen. But you, because you've already seen the movie, you, see, you know what's going to happen. And so you remain calm and you know how the story will pan out. And this, it's similar too. like, say, for example, you're watching a sports game, but you already know what the score or the final score of the game is. Even if your team that you're rooting for is supposed to win and you see in the game that they're down by a gazillion points, because you know the end score, the final score, you're not going to get frustrated. You're not going to get mad. You're not going to slam your hands on the couch of anger. That's, that's what I do sometimes. Confession. <laughs> but because you know the final score, you're going to be okay. You're going to take comfort in that. And it's the same for us who put our faith in Christ. That no matter the hardships you endure right now in your work, no matter how hard life can be, no matter even the persecution that will come that many Christians have faced throughout history, we take comfort in the future because the future has already been written and decided by the one who controls it all. Our comfort is not on our circumstances. It's not on um, our bank accounts. It's not in how great our family is or how many friends we have or fill in the blank. Our comfort is in the future. And this is the gospel message. The gospel message does not end with Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. It ends when the story is complete, when we are all coming to, we are all kind of worship and be with our Father and our Savior, Jesus Christ, when there is a place full of joy, full of love, full of peace, full of abundance, full of all of his goodness, where Jesus is at the center of it all. That is the full story of the gospel when all renewal and restoration is complete. Now, um, there, there's so much that I could not cover and maybe, you know, didn't, didn't want to cover because this, this is a lot of stuff in Daniel chapter 8. Um, there's many books and many articles that you can read about it. But what I just want to leave with you all, um, and it's kind of what, what Rafe mentioned at the end of his sermon last week, is that my prayer is that as we go through a really difficult part of the Bible in Daniel 8 through 11, um, as we continue on, that you know, just FYI, it won't be next week with Easter. I won't preach Daniel 9 on Easter, just FYI, okay? Um, but for the prophetic uh, kind of scriptures here, the prophecies are meant to expand our vision, our view of God. I think for a lot of us, our view and our picture of God is just too small. It's in the now, it's in the here, it's in the tomorrow even. But God is the God of all time. He's not bound by time, and he's over all things. And what the prophecies are meant to do for us, and it's meant to do even for the Jews reading this, 
is to expand our view of who God is and how much control he has so that no matter what we're wrestling with right here, um, it's hard, it's, you know, God meets you in that comfort for sure, but it's to have this perspective that God is ruler over it all and that the end, the final ending of it all will be one of much comfort for those who believe in him. Amen? Let me pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for your difficult word this morning uh, or this afternoon. Um, God, we know that, uh, man, that uh, it's hard sometimes, God, to have a fuller picture of your sovereignty. Um, God, we're so tempted, God, to just have um, such limited uh, views of our, our lives. We just look at the next day or our calendar, and it just overwhelms us. We think of the unknowns. We think of um, the things that we don't have, our sicknesses. And God, you are Emmanuel, you are God with us, and so you meet us in those moments. But God, I do pray that you would help us to have a picture that is much bigger and more massive than our own lives. That you are a God who has written all good things for your sake and your glory. Um, and God, we want to we wanna lean into that. And so, Father, thank you so much for your word. Um, continue to give us perseverance through the rest of Daniel, I pray. Um, but more so, God, give us the comfort that all things will come to an end for the sake of your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.